welcome everybody. Week two of our live stream service and week two of our steep learning curve. Uh, by the time it's over, I think we'll all be experts at producing podcasts and broadcasts and, and a little, join, have a little extra skill. I'm thankful for a lot of things right now, not the least of which is that we have the ability to try some things and keep in touch. It isn't the same as being face-to-face -face or shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. We know that. But we're still connected. The Holy Spirit has bound us together in Jesus, and nothing is ever going to change that. So, so thanks for watching, and thanks for listening, for those of you who are uh, reading this off a written copy. Um, let's start with prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather electronically and in spirit as we learn together, encourage each other, speak on the phone or through social platforms. And we thank you, Lord, for your blessings and your love and your presence with us. We are your people. We are the church. Speak to our hearts as we communicate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm recording this uh, to premiere actually on Palm Sunday, and uh, this Sunday, April 5. Palm Sunday, as we know, commemorates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to the cheers of the crowds, and they really treated him as a conquering hero. That was the final week of his life before he went to the cross. A lot of Christians actually refer to this as, as Holy Week, uh, a lot of traditions. And, and not that other weeks aren't holy, but there is a special significance to this week and a special character to it. And so the events of this week are actually found in all four of the gospel accounts. And uh, I've got some references I'll put up in a moment from the book of Mark, if you want to jot them down. Because we start with Sunday, of course. Sunday of Holy Week started with um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm sorry if you can't read that very well. I'm just looking at it now and thinking it didn't show up too good. Uh, that was uh, Mark 11, uh, verses 1 through 11. The, the next day, which was our Monday, Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers. That was Mark 11, 15 to 19. On the Tuesday of that week, we focus on Jesus and his discourse on the Mount of Olives talking and, and on the Mount of Olives, Mark eleven twenty to Mark thir to thirteen thirty seven, quite a bit, quite a couple of chapters there. There's nothing actually recorded on the Wednesday of that week. Uh, some scholars have gone as far as suggesting that maybe Jesus just took a rest day and relaxed at Bethany from all of the previous, previous days being quite busy. Thursday, of course, Jesus and his disciples gathered together uh, to observe Passover and a last dinner, a last supper together that they would have before he went to the cross. That's found in Mark 14 from verses 12 to 72. Friday, well, Friday was Jesus' trials, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. Mark 15, 1 through 47. Saturday is an interesting day. Saturday, Jesus was in the tomb. It seemed like all was lost. There was darkness. And many traditions use Saturday as a day for contemplative prayer or prayers of lament and sorrow to remind us of, of the somberness of these events. But Sunday, <laughs> Sunday was resurrection. And that's Mark 16, of course. And yeah, wow. 
some of the later verses in Mark from verses 9 to 16 have been, most scholars believe, have been added and weren't part of the original manuscripts. But from Mark 16, 1 through 8, certainly, uh, uh, we know this is the story of the resurrection and 9 to 14 in some other Bibles. So here's what I'd like us to do. If you're willing, let's use this week to focus on these events and to reflect on their meaning. So read the passages on each day that relate to that day. And if you have time, look up the parallel accounts in the other Gospels and then use them to refresh our appreciation for the enormity of Jesus' gift to us. After this week's sermon, uh, we're going to actually have communion. I'm encouraged, actually, that, uh, and I want to encourage you to prepare these the elements in your own homes and take them together uh, so that we can be together one in spirit. You'll need some bread or something to represent his body and some grape juice. But if you don't have any of that in your pantry, you could use other elements. Um, they just, they'd have to represent his body and his blood. Uh, you could substitute tomato juice or you could substitute pomegranate juice if you have it too. Normally by now, at this part of the month, our pre-Easter flurry of activity would, would, in, would be in full gear. We'd be planning and working on special music, uh, thinking about dinner plans together. Uh, many of us would be attending a Good Friday service and uh, preparing to celebrate that most wonderful time of the year and that day of the year, Resurrection Sunday. The BC Baptist Conference, as you many of you know, has a Good Friday service every year in Surrey. This year, though, we are not able to gather, so BCBC is going to be live streaming the Good Friday service uh, this coming Friday, April 10th at 10 a.m. Uh, there's going to be worship, there's going to be prayer, there's going to be ministry of the word, there will be an opportunity, and they'll tell you how you can uh, take an, receive an offering or give them an offering, and they will have communion. And so they're encouraging us also to, to take communion along with them. So we'll put the website and the link up at the end of the sermon as well. So let's pray as we open God's word and get to the message for today. Lord God, we thank you this morning that we can learn about you. And we can do that because you have preserved your word for us. Your word is truth. Teach us, Lord, from the scriptures with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today, so if you want to turn there, uh, by all means, go right ahead at the start. When I, when I started pastoring, when I first started pastoring, that was, by the way, 28 years ago, and uh, it took me a while to figure out how long a sermon ought to be. The prevailing wisdom of the at that time was that a sermon shouldn't be longer than about 25 to 30 minutes, or about the time it takes to have a quick nap but not long enough that it would interrupt your nighttime sleep patterns. <laughs> uh, well, I always had a problem with that because uh, people in my church will be able to tell you, I have a tendency to go off topic and go down rambling rabbit trails, which does tend to add time to the message. So I, I promise that we'll be out of here in an hour. No, I'm just kidding. It probably won't be that long. <laughs> but when we present God's truth, when we do that, uh, 
we, we need the background and the context and the setting because they're so important for us for, to, be, uh, to understand it correctly. And Paul does a lot of this in the letter to the Romans. And he knows that for us to properly understand and appreciate and enjoy these incredible blessings of God, we need to recognize a lot of things. First of all, we need to recognize our sorry state apart from God and then understand the work of God for us. And Romans chapter 1 through chapter 4 painted that picture. And, and to be honest, it, it's pretty nasty. It's not even pretty nasty. Some You could even describe it as hellish because actually hell is where we were headed, where we are headed unless we repent of our sin, place our trust in Jesus, and receive the forgiveness that he has given to us, and then put our lives under his leadership. So Paul has shown us that the only work we can actually do is exercise faith in what Jesus has done. And when we do that, he said, God justifies and declares us to be in the right with him. In fact, even that our faith is actually a work of God. It isn't really our work at all, because God is the one who quickens us and draws us toward him. Last week, uh, we saw in chapter 4 that Paul was talking to the Jewish Roman readers, and he showed them that even Abraham, even Abraham, the father of their nation, was justified by his faith and not by observing, observing the law. And Paul says it's the same for us too. It's just as Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, so our faith is as well. It is credited, as Paul says, uh, written not to him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. But then, now, we get to Romans chapter 5 and we turn a major corner here. Paul is going to tell us now what that means to us, what the implications are of being in the right with God. So let's turn there now. Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Oh, wow, there's so much in these verses. Well, Paul starts off in verse 1 by saying that we've been justified through faith. What, 
what have we gained? What have we, what has changed as a result of that? What, what does it actually mean to be justified? Well, first of all, it means simply this. It means, first of all, we have peace with God through Jesus. Peace with God through Jesus. God has given us new status in Christ. In our day, we think of peace as the absence of hostility. That's sort of a negative definition. But in the Old Testament, the Jewish concept of peace, shalom, is, is quite positive. It's, it, it describes a state of harmony with God. And in Isaiah 32, as it says on our screen here, the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. And later in Isaiah chapter 48, he said this, and you might have this verse memorized. If you only had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river and your well-being like the waves of the sea. It's 48 verse 18. It doesn't happen automatically. It comes with believing and trusting God. And so the first benefit, the first change is that we are at peace with God. What a wonderful thought. That's the first. The second is, is even more amazing. Because of that, we have access into God's grace. Grace isn't just God's actions toward us. Grace is a state in which we live in Jesus. By grace, Paul wrote to Ephesians, by grace we are saved. Yeah, but by grace we also live. We live in a constant state of grace. This is amazing to me, and that pun is intended, actually, amazing grace. Because not only has God saved a wretch like me, his grace toward me is ongoing and it's continual. So we're in a place of high favor with God. And that means we can access the very throne room of God without any fear. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says this. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So yeah, peace with God, access into his grace. Third aspect of being justified before God is, is joy, joy. <laughs> There's a scholar, a Scottish scholar named F.F. F. Bruce, uh, who said this, he said, peace and joy are like, they're like twin blessings of the gospel. He quoted an old Scots preacher who said it this way, peace is joy resting. Joy is peace dancing. I like that. So why do we have joy? Well, first, because we now have the hope of God's glory. We can boast in it. That's actually the word that he uses in this verse. And this isn't the kind of boasting that the Bible prohibits. This is the kind of boasting that we can do because we're boasting about the character of God and about the acts of God. Uh, scripture even tells us, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We rejoice. We have joy in what God has done because we're no longer under condemnation and we share in his glory. And so we rejoice in that hope. 
Second thing we can rejoice in or boast about is our sufferings. Wait, what? Did I hear you right, Paul? Actually, yeah, Christians don't get a free pass to ward off the challenges of life. Any faith system that claims that your life in Jesus will be without any trouble is off the mark. We don't rejoice, though, because we suffer. I mean, that, that would be like, oh, Lord, it hurts so good. Thank you. Praise God. No, that's not what he's saying here. We rejoice because God uses those difficulties in life to, to grow us and to mature us and to build into our lives. How do we respond to the trials that come our way? If we're honest, we don't like them. We don't like them at all. We actually devote a lot of our life to avoiding pain and discomfort, but it seems to find us anyway. But how we see it makes a big difference. Because when we see it as something that tempers or strengthens us, it's, it's much more tolerable. Hebrews 12 actually tells us that God disciplines us, or it's Hebrews 13, that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. He also says it's actually a sure sign of being his kids. The key, I think, is to recognize that God uses trials to build us. He builds, as this scripture in Romans says, he builds perseverance into our lives. And that perseverance, in turn, turns into character. And knowing that God is at work, even in these things, to bring us blessing, gives me reason to, to rejoice. Because, let's face it, if we struggled for no good reason, it would simply be unbearable. But just in the same way that heat tempers steel, we are strengthened to, by persevering through these challenges of life. So that's why three reasons that we have joy. Um, we also, the, that's two of them. The third one is, is we can have joy because we have been reconciled with the Father. We've been reconciled. But we're actually getting a little ahead of ourselves here because in another couple of weeks, in a different sermon, we'll talk a lot more. Or maybe even at the end of this one, we'll talk more about that. We have joy, even through suffering. Now, there's a fourth blessing that we enjoy, we enjoy that's utterly amazing. It is amazing. We have God's love. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. At, think about it. At the center of our being, at the center of our being, God, the Holy Spirit, is enabling us to grasp the full extent of his love. He is resonating with our spirit. God doesn't give his love to us in small doses. I hope you know that. He doesn't. He pours it into our hearts, Paul says. And that's the same word, actually, that Peter used on the day of Pentecost when he described the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the crowd of 3,000 people. The Holy Spirit floods our hearts with God's love. Question, 
have you experienced God's love? Well, I, I realize experience is subjective and that, that your experience and mine might be quite different. You should have assurance in your heart of God's love for you if he's there. Uh, but, but the love of God isn't just a, a subjective feeling. I mean, think of that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. But Paul doesn't just give us, it doesn't leave us just with a subjective feeling. He gives objective proof of it. He says this, here's how you can tell. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, at the time God appointed in, his, in history, Jesus died for the ungodly, for us. Have you ever heard a saying, you probably have, God helps those who help themselves? It's not in the Bible. It's actually from a book called Poor Richard's Almanac. The truth is that God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. We are simply unable to meet the righteous demands of God. And in our natural state, we are ungodly, which basically means without God, not like God. The magnitude of his love for us is proven and shown by this. He sent his son to die for us while we were still in that sorry state. Now, to make sure that we actually get the point, if we haven't got it by now, Paul gives us an example here. He says, very rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Uh, we respect them. We respect righteous people. But respect isn't a good enough reason to die for somebody. Some, some might dare, he says, to give their life for a good person or, or for someone they love. But God's love is so great that Jesus gave his life for us while we were still sinners, totally unrighteous. I mean, how much better can it get? Really? Well, I thought you'd never ask. I'm glad, aren't you glad when you ask rhetorical questions like that? I am. There are two more blessings, two more amazing blessings that come with being justified. And they're expressed in language that we simply can't miss. You can't overlook this. We are saved from God's wrath. Saved from God's wrath. And Paul is using an argument here in these verses. He's using a, 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 a debate, a rhetoric style called uh, from the greater to the lesser. And it goes like this. If the harder thing is true, then the easier one is much more true. So, which is it harder for God to do? To declare us right when we're sinners or to turn his wrath away from us? It's not a trick question. Because God did the impossible for us when he accepted Jesus' sacrifice as payment for our sin. If God can do that, and Paul says, since we are justified by his blood, 
How much more, there's that argument, shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? How much more? Our sin debt has been paid. We are not under God's wrath anymore. He's already brought us to himself. We're saved from the coming wrath of the final judgment. And he states it again in the next verse, just a little bit different. And this is the final blessing of what it means to be justified. It says, we are saved through Jesus' life. And then this is verse 10. He says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There's that how much more again. Jesus is alive. He's been raised to life. He's eternally reigning. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, the position of power and authority. And we, in him, are also raised to life. So these, these two statements together are, are amazing. Justification deals with the legal concept that we are declared to be righteous in the right with God. Reconciliation says, now that the judicial matter is out of the way, God has removed the hostility that was between us and him. So we're justified by his blood. We have right standing. And we're reconciled, which means we are restored to relationship with him. The hostility is gone. The sin is dealt with. We have peace with God. I love this quote. It's actually from Timothy Keller. He's a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He said this, The peace of God is not the absence of fear. It, in fact, is his presence. I love it. We have peace with God. You know, church, we have peace, we have joy, and we have a hope that is certain. That overall feel of these verses could be summed up in the words of that lovely Fanny Crosby song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This Jewish concept that Paul has been talking about, this Jewish concept of justification, and also the opposite, its opposite, condemnation, are both actually tied together in to, to the ultimate, the day of judgment, the day of atonement that was, is still to come. Paul is saying that once we are justified, for the Christian, once we are justified, God has already pronounced his verdict over us, but he's declared us in the right, and we will stay in the right with him. That's why we can have such confidence and the sure hope of this salvation. That's the much more. Much more are we justified by his blood. By his blood. Much more are we saved through his life. He lives for eternity, and so do we. We're, we're reconciled. 
Our hope is secure. Nothing can separate us from him. And that's Romans chapter 8, which is just hard to not just shout at the shout on the rooftops. Well, what are we going to take away from this today? This is a recap, but but we have these seven things, six things. We have peace with God. We have access into God's grace. And we have joy for the hope of God's glory, uh, even through the trials that we have. And because we're reconciled through Jesus. And we also know the love of God has been poured into our hearts. We're saved through from God's wrath. And we are saved through his blood. The blood he sacrificed on a cross. Question. Do you have this confidence Do you have his peace, even in the down and dirty moments of life's trials? Do you have his peace? Because peace, joy, and certain hope are the markers of those who have been declared in the right with God, those who are justified, God's redeemed people. The Lord Jesus gave us two commands, two things to remember through time. And we've actually put them even into our bylaws, in our church bylaws. He said this, the first was to make disciples and to baptize them. The second was to give us this gift of a ceremony that would remind us of how wonderful this gift was of the life he has given to us and for us. And so we're going to actually observe time together across the airwaves of communion. And if you uh, are watching and you're not watching in real time on Sunday morning, pause the video now and go and get your elements and then come back and we'll join together. We know these very well. Very well. Scripture says, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, at that last time he ate together with his disciples, his close friends, took some of the elements of that meal. It says he took bread, lifted it up, gave thanks for it, broke it, and distributed it to them. And he said, let this represent my body broken for you. When you do this, remember. Remember what was done. Remember why. Remember the significance of this sacrifice. Then it says, after supper, he lifted one of the cups from the meal. And he said, this will represent his blood, the blood of the new covenant he is making with us. His blood shed for us on that cross. For we know that without the, for the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He became that one true sacrifice for us. His body broken 
his blood shed. And so we have these two elements, and we're going to take them. The first represents his body, bread or a wafer or a cracker, or what you have there. Let's thank him together. Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus, for the body of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for these symbols that you have given to us, that you were not willing to have us be separated from you for eternity, but you sent your Son, and the Lord Jesus came willingly to lay down his life for us. We thank you in his name. This is his body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Let's take and eat. And then he lifted the cup, also known as the cup of redemption in that particular meal. He said, a new covenant I'm making in you. This is once for all. This is for all of you, for all of eternity, from all time, from the start of time until time ends. His blood shed for us that we might be forgiven of sin and declared right in his righteousness, the blood of the Lord. And we know he says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we do. We do it enough that we do not forget and take it lightly. We do it enough, but not too much, that we would take it for granted. We always do it in keeping with the spirit that he tells us to remember him, to take the opportunity as we do this, to reflect on our lives, to take whatever He, sh the Holy Spirit shows us and make us right with him. Agree with him. Agree to get it out of our lives. And with the Lord, the Lord's help, to walk with him in the freedom that he has given to us. Almost finished here. Many of you know the name Matt Redman. Matt Redman was actually the songwriter of one of my, my all-time favorite. I want this one at my memorial service, people. Just, just saying. Uh, he wrote the song 10,000 Reasons, published in 2011. In 2011, Matt also released a book that he had written. The book is called Mirror Ball. That's, you can't see it too well in the picture there, but it's it's one of those ballroom mirrors that you see hanging up in the middle of the room they shine light on. The subtitle of his book is Living Boldly and Shining Brightly for the Glory of God. And in it, he says this. If I wake up one day and cannot think of a reason to bring praise to God, then something is wrong with my spiritual outlook. If we fumble around in the dark, struggling to find a reason to be thankful, we can be entirely sure that the blockage lies at our end of the pipeline. God's goodness and glory fly at us speedily and steadily 
from every imaginable angle. Look deep into the truth of Scripture, and you will find a reason for his praise on every single page. Look up towards the wonders of nature, and you will see his glory heralded by all the many masterpieces of his creation. Look behind you at God's track record in your life, and you will see his faithfulness woven like a thread through every single one of your days. Celebrate the victories he won on your behalf. Look straight ahead of yourself in faith, and you will see the future shining bright with his promises. And remember what is in your hands today, and you will see his daily provision at work in your life. Look into the faces of your loved ones and the ones who love you, and thank your Heavenly Father who enriches your life. Look into the window of your own heart, and you will recognize his works on the inside of you ever since the day you surrendered to his holiness. See him saving you, shaping you, teaching you, and leading you without fault and without fail. Every single direction we look, we find another reason to exalt him. Every moment of every day, more incentives to sing out his praise swirl all around us. 10,000 reasons for our heart to find. What is left? What is left but to praise him? What better praise can we give than to conform our lives to his will? Let's pray. Our Father, we are overwhelmed with gratitude to you when we really truly grasp and see the things that Matt has described, but that you described in Scripture before that. When we see them, Lord, and your blessings and your gifts to us, we give you praise and thank you. We thank you, Lord. And we thank you for this week as we take time to remember the events of your final week before the cross and of the cross itself and to put the full context of that in place so that we can even better, greater appreciate Resurrection Day. In your name, Jesus, we pray and thank you. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, here's the, the uh, commercial, if you will, for BCBC's Good Friday service. Uh, please, if you can, join us online. Join us for the live stream service as we celebrate it together. And may God bless you this week as you prepare your hearts for next Sunday for Resurrection Day. See you next week. Bye.